On the evening of November 5th in 1975, a seven-man logging crew was returning home from a long day of cutting wood in the Sitegraves National Forest of northern Arizona. As they traveled down a bumpy forest road towards the highway, a red hue hanging over a nearby tree line had suddenly caught their attention. As they approached what they believed to be the glow of a forest fire, they suddenly stopped. Both terrified and awestruck by what they had found illuminating the inky darkness. Hovering in the sky silently, just above a line of trees, was a bright, glowing object. They would all later claim to have witnessed something many believe to be an impossibility. This is episode three of season one of They Disappeared. Fire in the sky or fraud in the air. Examining the disappearance and reappearance of Travis Walton. The logging crew would all later claim to authorities that one of their crew, a man named Travis Walton, got out of the work truck to get a closer look at the unknown object hovering in the sky. Despite the loud protests of the other loggers, telling Travis not to go near the object and to return to the truck. Travis continued to draw closer until he was reportedly standing directly underneath it. The loggers all claim that what happened next was a loud noise emanated from the object, followed by a bluish beam of light that struck Travis, lifting him off his feet and sending him crashing to the ground. Terrified, the men sped away in the truck. And it wasn't until they were nearly a mile away that they stopped and reevaluated their decision to leave Travis behind. Eventually, they all agreed to turn around to get him. However, when they returned to that spot, Travis was gone. You expect me to believe that a flying saucer came down and took your friend away to outer space. That's the truth, mister. After hearing this story, authorities were understandably skeptical and began to theorize that the men were using the abduction story to cover up a murder. All six men were asked to individually take lie detector tests, which they all agreed to do. And to the surprise of the local sheriff, after administering the tests, the results suggested that all of the men were telling the truth. So if the men's story was indeed true, and Travis Walton hadn't been murdered, the next logical question was where was he? Ground searches conducted in the Sitegraves National Forest did not locate any evidence to corroborate a murder or abduction, leaving authorities baffled and placing the disappearance case of Travis Walton at a standstill. But that would all change five days later, when Travis Walton returned, with a story that would make worldwide headlines. But rather than me retelling that story, 
Here's Travis Walton in his own words, describing the event and his experience on CNN to Larry King in 1993. Welcome to Larry King Live. Thousands of Americans claim they've had a terrifying UFO experience. Many such stories fall apart under scientific scrutiny. But this one impresses a lot of people. The 1975 Travis Walter and Walton encounter in Arizona is now the basis of a movie, Fire in the Sky, from Paramount Pictures. It opened today. It lays out one of the most intriguing and controversial UFO abduction cases, one that remains a major flashpoint between believers and skeptics. We're going to hear from both sides. But we start with Travis Walton himself, here in our Washington studio. Also here is Mike Rogers, his friend and a witness to the incident. And we do have time limitations. This movie opened today. It looks like it's going to be a big one. What happened, Travis? Your own words briefly. Okay, well, it was uh, just another day. Yeah, just another work day <laughs> out in the woods, cutting trees. This is where? Uh, in the St. Grace National Forest in uh, Arizona. Uh, there were seven of us. It was starting to get dark. We loaded up our chainsaws and... Uh, You're a logger. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we were headed home. Um, as we were leaving there, we saw a light coming through the trees. And uh, when we finally got down the road to where we could see the source of this light, we saw a UFO hovering near the road. All seven of us. All seven of us. Uh, it was uh, only 90 feet away. It was very clear and unmistakable. The minute it came into view, somebody yelled, uh, it's, a, it's a spaceship or something like that. Uh, we stopped the truck, and I got out and went toward it. Not just you, not the other six. Not the other six. They were yelling at me to get back in the truck and get away from there. Good thinking. Yeah, it would have been. <laughs> anyway, uh, as I got closer to it, um, it started to uh, move and started to, the sound started to get louder. And uh, that scared me. I jumped down behind some cover there. And uh, the men in the truck were screaming at me to get away from there. So, um, uh, I raised up to go, and uh, I was hit. I, it felt like a physical blow, and uh, I blacked out. Uh, the men in the truck said they saw a, a powerful bolt of energy come out of the bottom of the craft and hit me. They said it just looked like a grenade went off in front of me. They, they said it uh, threw me through the air about 10 feet. You were watching this, right, Mike? Yes. And uh, they said I hit the ground limp, and uh, they thought it, it killed me. So uh, they left. Yeah. Out of fright, too. Yes. Now, what happened to you? What well, do you remember? Uh, I was missing for five days and six hours before I woke up uh, on the roadway outside of Heber. That's a little town near the, where this happened. Do you have lots of memories of those five days? Not a lot. Uh, actually, less than 20 minutes. It's a, it's a very difficult thing to recall. Did you go somewhere with them? Uh, yes, apparently. Two? I don't know. Did you take off? I mean, do you remember it taking off? Uh, when I was returned, I, I saw it take off. When you were returned? Oh, you saw it leave? Yes. But you don't remember it leaving with you in it? No, I, I regained consciousness on board the craft. 
Oh, you were on board the craft. Yeah. You remember that? Yes. What do they want with you? I don't know. That's, you know, it, what I remember seems to be so much like a, a fragment of something that, you know, it's just very difficult to make any sense out of it. What they look like? They looked uh, uh, like, uh, well, they were four or five feet tall, humanoid-looking, hairless creatures uh, with uh, very large eyes. Male, female? Can't really tell. Did they talk? Um, no. No, they never spoke. They never said a word? Never said a word. What did they do to you? Well, I don't know. I just regained consciousness, and as soon as I saw them, I just flipped out. I became hysterical and, and pushed them away from me and, and uh, lashed out at them. So whatever was going on uh, was while I was unconscious. What shape were you in five days later? I was in pretty bad shape. No oh, food? Well, uh, I had missed a medical test that <clears throat> suggested that there wasn't starvation. Because they say that, you know, if you haven't had any food for five days, or the, the ketones or acetones will show up in a you know, yeah. sample. But uh, there were any in the sample. So they're thinking that probably there must have been some sort of nutrition. Now, admittedly, this was a vague retelling of Travis's story. In comparison to his book, Fire in the Sky, in which his story is told in greater detail. I should also note here that his book is quite different than the movie adapted from it. But more on that later. So whether you accept Travis's story or not, there are key details and events in his book that I want to go through in order, as they will be important to remember very soon. Now according to Travis as written in Fire in the Sky, he was struck by a blue beam of light. He then awakened in a strange craft, thinking he was in a hospital. He was then confronted by three alien beings. He grabbed an object that looked like a clear piece of glass to use as a weapon, and then those aliens ran away. Travis then wandered into a room with a chair situated in its center. The room darkened as he approached the chair until it resembled a planetarium surrounding him in darkness and stars. While in this room, he is approached by a male human wearing a glass helmet. This man does not speak. Rather, he leads Travis out of the craft where there is another human, a female. They subdue him and put a mask over his face. Shockingly, Travis wakes up on a highway near where he was abducted and watches as the craft he was on vanishes at a high rate of speed and out of sight. What Travis believed then was that his ordeal had lasted less than an hour, only to learn later he had been gone for five days. Now it's okay to believe Travis's story, and I'm not judging anyone who does. I took time to look further into the claims of Travis and the men he worked with, just to see if it could pass simple scrutiny. And here is some of what I found in my research. First, 
Travis's experience as written in Fire in the Sky is very similar to what happened to a man named Clifford Kip Russell. Kip Russell is the main character in the book Have Spacesuit Will Travel, written by Robert Heinlein in August of 1958, 17 years prior to Fire in the Sky. Now here are some of the similarities between the events in what happened to Travis and compared to what happened to Kip. Kip Russell encounters a flying saucer at night, just as Travis had. He is also struck by a blue beam of light and rendered unconscious. When Kip awakens, he thinks he's in a hospital, but is actually aboard a craft. He wanders around, eventually entering a room that resembles a planetarium. And it comes alive with images of stars around him. At one point, he's forced down and immobilized by humans who work for aliens. When Kip is returned to Earth, he's dropped off on the side of the road. And it is not on the same day he thinks it is. There are a lot of similarities here that are just too exact to ignore. And later, I'll provide additional behind-the-scenes details I uncovered that may not be widely known about Travis's story and how it was told, including strange statements made by close family members of Travis. But first, I return to that same Larry King interview that picks back up with Philip Kloss a man who investigated Travis's story and believes it's a hoax. Also in this segment is Mike Rogers, the foreman of Travis's logging crew on the night of his abduction and a witness to that event. The exchanges between the three gets heated fairly quickly, as you're about to hear. man who is known as the Sherlock Holmes of ufology, Philip Class is senior editor at Aviation Week and Space Technology. He has spent decades investigating UFO incidents, written several skeptical books, and he says this Travis Walton story, and therefore this movie, is a hoax. He's here with us in Washington. He's saying, Phil, that all seven of these people are lying. I'm afraid we have to say that on the basis of physical evidence. Meaning? Physical evidence that should have been there, but was not. Now, you heard Travis and Mike Rogers claim that this beam from the ufo was like a, a grenade exploding fire flame that travis was knocked 10 feet back and in his book he claims he hit his shoulder against the rock now shortly after travis reappeared he was given a physical examination by two medical doctors in phoenix dr kendall and dr saltz they found no bruise marks. They found no burn marks. They found no physical damage. The only thing was a, like a, a needle mark in his, his elbow. So there was no physical evidence. 
when the morning after this incident allegedly occurred, when the law enforcement officers went to the site to inspect, they found all kinds of dry pine needles, which, if this had actually happened, those needles would have been blasted away, they would have caught fire, they would have burned. Why are you laughing, Travis? Well, because uh, this is typical of the sort of reasoning pattern this man uses in attacking all UFO cases. Uh, he's equating the absence of evidence to be the evidence of absence. That's absurd, you know, and that, that's uh, actually a logical fallacy. And uh, he does not know the nature of this energy beam. He, he, he presumes but I know, to know the nature of somebody being blasted through the air 10 feet and hitting their shoulder against rock. There should be bruise marks. But let's talk about some other evidence. That Late that night, a, um, a deputy sheriff, Ken Copeland, together with Mike Rogers, went to the Gibson Ranch House, where Travis's mother was staying, to break the news to her that her son apparently had been zapped by a UFO and had been abducted. Right. And and uh, Sheriff Copeland told me, he said, when I went there, he said, I was, I was afraid she was going to become hysterical. She was going to break into tears. I didn't know what would happen. And when Mike Rogers told the mother what allegedly had happened, she said, took it very calmly. She says, well, those things happen. And then she started to tell the officer about her own UFO sighting and the time that the other well, son, Dwayne, had been chased by a UFO. Look there, hold on. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was there. I was, one of, I was there with Ken Copeland, and I was there with Travis's mother. And Ken Copeland has embellished this thing to beat hell. Uh, first of all, you're challenging you're, the truthfulness of the I certainly am. I certainly am. There, there, were well, there were three people there. On, there were three Here. people there. Me, Travis's mother, and Ken Copeland. Travis's mother does not say that these things were said like this. I can testify that they were not said like this. It's, it's Ken Copeland's word against the two of us. Have you asked Ken why he's not telling the truth? I haven't talked to Ken Copeland since then. Well, you, you see, you know, my mother is a very self-reliant person. She was staying in a cabin miles from nowhere by herself. She's not that sort of person. She raised six kids by herself. She's a very strong woman, and she's not somebody to just fly to pieces because somebody uh, is telling her that her son is missing. Also, I, I would like, first of all, I think it's necessary for people to know just exactly what class really is, who he really is. Uh, he's nothing more than a disinformation specialist from Washington, D.C. The man has used character assassination, mudslinging, and uh, outright fabrications in an attempt you to cover up the truth. You are a goddamned liar, Mike Rogers, in, in, and I have caught you in falsehood after falsehood, no, you have and not, you sir. know it. No. Philip Kloss may not have been the best spokesperson for debunking Travis's story. And getting angry suggests there is a level of frustration between these three men. Each side accuses the other of lying. One side wants physical proof that the other side can't produce. And each side has their own version of events that occurred at the time, with a focus put on the strange statement made by Travis's mother. A National Enquirer reporter who visited Travis after the event, spoke with Travis's brother, Dwayne, who actually told the Inquirer he himself had once been chased by a UFO in the Sightgraves National Forest. 
Some other facts to consider with Travis's story is the timing. Just two weeks prior to his abduction, the TV movie The UFO Incident had aired. That detailed the story of Betty and Barney Hill, a couple that had dramatically claimed under hypnosis to be victims of an alien abduction where they were experimented on. It was also noted that at the time of Travis's abduction, Mike Rogers' forest-cutting contract had already been delayed once and was close to becoming overdue, which would have cost him half the money he was set to make if it were completed on time. The only written escape out of the contract was an unforeseen event or an act of God. After Travis's incident, Mike was released from his cutting contract and received full compensation for the unfinished work. The strongest rebuttal to skeptics of Travis's story is the lie detector test that all seven men reportedly passed. But it was learned later that the test given by law enforcement to the six men after Travis's abduction contained questions mostly related to whether any of the men participated in murdering Travis and concealing his body. Only a few questions involved the object they claimed to have seen. It was even suggested later that Travis and Mike, with the assistance of Dwayne Walton, had rigged something in the trees to make the other men believe they were seeing a UFO, and that Mike drove off too quickly for them to get a clear look at it. And when the men returned, Travis had already taken the contraption down and left on another road with Duane. Of course, that's all speculation by those wanting to debunk the case and explain how the men passed polygraphs. Inside this episode's show notes, there is a link to a story by a former National Enquirer reporter. Now, according to that reporter, when the Enquirer got involved in the story, they were not allowed to even speak with Travis until they paid his brother Dwayne first. After speaking with Travis, the Enquirer had to convince him with more money to take a lie detector test with their polygrapher. And according to the Enquirer's reporter, Travis failed that test miserably. Around the time of Travis's abduction, the Enquirer was offering tens of thousands of dollars for proof of alien existence. Now, even though they doubted Travis's story, the Enquirer still thought it could sell magazines. So they offered Travis and each man from the logging crew $2,500 each for their story, which they all accepted. Since most believers and defenders of Travis Walton point to the results of the lie detector tests as evidence that Travis's story is true, I leave them with this. Several years ago, Travis agreed to take a very public lie detector test on national TV for the TV show The Moment of Truth. The test was administered prior to the results being revealed on air. The final question and lie detector response are in the following clip from that broadcast. What happened on November 4th? 
1975. Well, Travis Walton has told us a detailed account. You can read his book. What is the title of the book? Fire in the Sky. The Fire in the Sky. Also a movie based on his story. And basically, he says he was driving with six crew members from a day of work where they saw a flying saucer. He jumped out of the truck. And the next thing was witnessed by Ken and others that a beam of energy or light hit you. And you believe that you were abducted. And Ken believes that you were abducted by aliens for that period of time. So we ask that question. Question 15 is simply this. Were you abducted by a UFO on November 5th, 1975? Yes. That answer is... skeptic and so i try not to judge or root one way or the other but i was really hoping that this answer was a true answer all i will say to you is that when asked this while strapped to the polygraph machine it was deduced that your response was conclusively deceptive sadly i'll say that the one hundred thousand dollars you stood to win by answering truthfully is not yours but i will happily say that by having the courage to face us and be here and answer these questions 14 of which you answered truthfully. We have $25,000 for you. Is there... Is there anything, Travis, you'd like to say before we say goodbye? Well, the polygraph is 97% accurate, not 100, even in the best of cases. Travis, thank you very much for being here. Thank you for giving the opportunity for us to hear your story.